0: I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of UpZoned. I'm Abby Kinney, and this week we are going to be doing something a little differently. We have Daniel Hargis here, who is the senior editor at Strong Towns and author of Strong Towns' new ebook on Kansas City. In honor of the release of this series, Daniel will be interviewing me and a fellow Kansas Cityan who has been on the show a handful of times now, Kevin Klinkenberg. Thanks for joining us today, Kevin.
1: Thank you. It's great to be back.
0: So with that, I will ask Daniel to take it away.
2: Absolutely. Thanks, Abby. So as Abby mentioned, and as you may know, if you've been reading Strong Towns throughout this year, we've been doing a long-term series on Kansas City based on a really detailed fiscal geography of the city that was conducted by Urban3, the geoanalytics consulting firm that we collaborate with quite a bit. And we've now taken the best of these articles and we've compiled them into a brand new ebook, which is being launched uh, the same day that this podcast is being published, November 18th. And you can find it on our website and you can find all of the articles from this series at strongtowns.org slash Kansas City. So Abby invited me to be on UpZone to, to talk about this. And I said, really, I should be interviewing you because you're the one who's local to Kansas City and can really reflect on what the importance of this kind of work is for Kansas City, and where the community is, is taking these ideas. Um, and Kevin, I'm really glad to have you here as well. In particular, because Kevin, I know that you've been involved in the community there with a number of hats, but that you moved away from Kansas City for a number of years, and then recently came back, and that's given you an interesting perspective. So maybe in light of that, Kevin, if you wanted to take us away a little bit with some thoughts. Um, You know, I know that Kansas City sort of has an image to the rest of the country, exemplified by this idea that until very recently it was the leading metro area in freeway miles per capita. So the country kind of views Kansas City as a heartland city that's in love with its cars and its suburbs, and certainly not a capital of either urbanism or urbanity. But I have the sense that attitudes there have really started to shift, and there are countervailing voices now to those who see Kansas City's future as simply the task of completing the suburbanization of the city. Um, and that maybe that's something that wasn't so much the case in the past. So Kevin, I'm I'm interested in particular in hearing from you because you've had the experience of moving away and coming back as to how you see the the winds changing in Kansas City.
1: Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Daniel. But like the prodigal son uh, leaving and coming back, I guess. Most people have like a love hate relationship with their hometown, I suppose, and I'm really no no different in that regard. And uh, there's a lot I love about Kansas City, but over the course of my life, I probably tried two or three different times to leave, uh, and then finally did leave in 2010 for about eight or nine years in Savannah, Georgia, which was truly wonderful. So I, I've had my fair share of criticism with Kansas City. Some people haven't always liked me for that reason, but that's you know I've just tried to call it the way I see it. I I even once wrote a blog post calling it Car City USA. Piggyback on your point, you know, about how it's such a car-dominant city. You know, your question is good and and that things really, the conversation has changed. When I used to give presentations, say in the early 2000s about new urbanism and and urban design and really try to uh, talk to people that there was this incredible demand for urban living, I would tend to get a lot of really like friendly pat on the backs and that's really nice tell us more, but we're not, you know, we're really not convinced. And uh, time and culture change and the development of our downtown have completely altered that conversation. So, you know, we've gone from, you know, having maybe 10,000 people living in greater downtown to over 30,000 now in 15 years, the presence of all of those people and, and a lot more energy in the city has clearly convinced, I think, a lot more people that there's something to this and that a whole lot of people really like urban living. A whole lot of people in the Midwest really like and want urban living. And if we can um, find our ways to doing it better and doing more of it, then we'll we'll see more uh, success in that regard.
0: And I guess I'll piggyback on that. And <laughs> my perspective is a little bit different in a way, just because I'm young enough to not have experienced the dominant attitudes of Kansas City prior to 2012 when I moved here from St. Louis. My mom's side of the family are all from Kansas City, and as a kid, I would travel up here every other year to attend family reunions uh, in the downtown area, and I do remember the downtown being pretty empty, and we often ventured to other parts of the city to go to visitor attractions. I'm actually in some ways grateful to have gotten to know Kansas City from experience post-2012 because people have been doing really interesting things here for during that time. And based on my perspective, there's certainly been a noticeable shift in attitudes over the past eight years. When I first moved here, I did feel that the culture around embracing the roots of the city were undoubtedly stronger than what I had experienced in St. Louis, although I think St. Louis is probably changing too. I worked at a downtown concert venue and restaurant for several years. And at that time, it was basically the only active or legitimate business on that block. And I've, I've watched that area transform from being just a destination to A really robust neighborhood with a strong local community and local business ecosystem over the past eight years. And this is not unique to one area. Kansas City has been really embracing its uh, traditional DNA for a number of years, even before I was here. And there's a lot of reasons that we can be excited. And I think a lot of it has to do with the generational shift.
2: The generational thing is certainly true um, as a generation of people not only grows up, but kind of comes into uh, political power and positions of more influence who didn't grow up in that first wave of suburbanization and the late 20th century era where there was some sort of stigma around anything associated with like the inner city. You know, I certainly I've seen that cultural change in my hometown of the Twin Cities in Minnesota, um, and it's been fascinating to watch. I kind of feel like, um, and Abby, I'm going to ask you to sort of tell me if I'm if I'm right here, but I get the sense that also part of why our conversation is really resonating has to do with the timing. In that there's been a real high profile debate in Kansas City around the city's fiscal issues. There's been some very public backlash to the use use of tax incentives and the way those have been, you could you could say, abused, and then you know, completely independent of the work we did this year. KCUR, the NPR affiliate there, put out a big article this spring that said the pandemic forces an overdue reckoning with Kansas City's budget woes. So, Abby, you know, as someone who works as a planner, where do you see this conversation about budget woes really dovetailing with what Strong Towns and Urban 3 have been trying to add to the conversation? And why is Why is the fiscal lens or why isn't it a promising way to kind of start these conversations or move them into the halls of power?
0: Yeah, I think that the era of COVID has really magnified our budget issues and really brought them to the center of our attention. The timing really aligned up in a way that I think helped to put perspective on some of that. The conversations that Strong Towns has sparked in Kansas City, as well as the work of Urban 3, has introduced a different way of looking at our city that is different than the conventional perspective. And Kansas City is no different than many other metros around the country when it comes to our adoption of expensive growth in the suburban experiment following the 1950s. And prior to the 1950s, though, Kansas City had a really robust and communally wealthy place that we, we still have in many respects, but we now have four times as much city that we need to take care of with basically the same population that we had in the 1950s. There was actually a quote from one of your articles, Daniel, where you referred to Kansas City before the 1940s as being a, um, let's see, the quote is, a carefully cultivated beauty in the form of elegant parks and grand civic buildings, a showpiece for the city beautiful movement. And anyone who is familiar with our history understands that the era following the 1940s, our suburban expansion and urban renewal was really detrimental to sustaining the beautiful place that we had built through our own community wealth. And over the years, continuing to build in that way has really made us less fiscally resilient. And, you know, when we made the decision to drastically expand our metro, nobody sat down and did the math on how much that was going to cost us in the long run. Urban 3's value per acre mapping helps us understand where our city is most economically potent and how development patterns can help sustain the economic viability of our places. The framing that Strong Towns provides puts many of these issues into perspective, and I think that that is uh, incredibly important when thinking about this this detrimental issue with COVID, as well as how we create fiscally sustainable places into the future.
2: Yeah, Joe at Urban Three, Joe Minicosi likes to say um, of the presentations he does and the consulting he does with cities, he says, "You know, I'm going to give you the data." And I'm going to give you a really clear picture of where are your assets and where are your liabilities? And is the path you're on something you can sustain and be solvent? And then it's up to you to have the political discussion about, well, what do you do with this information? But data is a way to sort of have the conversation that might be difficult to have otherwise, because the numbers don't lie. And if you're staring down over a budget cliff, you know, that doesn't lie. And I'm I think there's a lot of truth to that. I also wonder what are the limitations of that, you know, and particularly in a place like Kansas City, where you've got this really stark kind of dichotomy in development pattern and demographics and a number of other things between like the traditional core of the city and the disinvested and formerly redlined East Side, and then the Northland, which is really suburban in character it strikes me as a tall order to say, well, we're just going to show you the data and then you can hash it out from there and it's not going to turn into a culture war. And I'm wondering, you know, how does that play out in practice? And are there voices who would react to the kinds of observations we're making as, well, you're just, you're fighting a culture war against the suburbs. You're all urbanist (laughs) snobs, yada,
1: yada, yada. We're trying to cancel the suburbs. You know, I come to all this really from the background of being a a designer, an architect and and a planner The experience I've had over the years, you know, when we when I've talked about these things through the lens of design and planning, you know, it can get a little pedantic at times. Let's be honest. (laughs) And it resonates with some people, but not not everybody. And it can be very subjective. But when you put things in the language of money, which I think the Strong Towns and the Urban Three conversation have done, people really sit up and pay attention. And they pay much more attention to understanding, trying to understand where their money goes and where our collective money goes. And it often reminds me of something we used to say in the early days of new urbanism. We used to talk about, you know, it's incredible how you can look back 100, 150 years ago when our society was much poorer on the whole and, you know, individuals and families were arguably much poorer and, yet we built incredible places you know, look at the remnants of what is left from that era. Incredible public works, beautiful buildings, unbelievable relics from that era, even just the very average buildings um, that were built. It's always been a challenge to talk about why that is. Uh, And I think this conversation really helps put specific information to it that is easily relatable.
0: It is a great challenge that we have a difficult political time having these kinds of discussions. And, you know, Kansas City as a municipality is very large and it has a lot of competing interests and many institutional barriers that encourage us to grow in expensive ways and misuse land with existing infrastructure. There's sometimes a misconception that the places that we choose to live is some sort of indication of... How moral we are or, or how good we are when having this conversation rather than an indication of individuals making rational decisions based on what is offered to them and where. For example, the area of Kansas City that's north of the river, often referred to as the Northland, is primarily composed of conventional suburban development patterns. And these types of discussions can make people feel like they are being attacked for where they live and you know, we should recognize why people continue to move out of the city uh, still to this day and what kinds of motivations are supporting that. The most important thing that we can do is understand that this is a Kansas City problem. It's not a downtown problem or an east side problem or Northland problem or Southtown problem. And we need to be humble when approaching these conversations and understand that this is nobody's fault. There's not one person that we can point to and blame these problems on. And Kansas City is also not alone in addressing this predicament. So that that's something that I think is very important moving forward. I, I understand that these can cause really, really difficult political discussions that need to be done pragmatically if we're going to figure out how to balance the books. What do you think is the biggest
2: near-term challenge for Advancing the conversation in Kansas City about the city's development pattern and its long-term solvency, you know what, what's the biggest hurdle right now that really needs to be overcome?
1: One thing I'd say that might sound contradictory is we're having a certain amount of success right now. We've kind of been discovered a bit in the national limelight, which is great, is exciting, but there's sometimes a certain kind of arrogance that comes with that, with success and we've had success in our urban areas. And I think if we succumb to that too easily, then we'll have tons of problems. Uh, you know, we are still very much in the early early innings of a long game uh, in terms of recovering our culture that we, that we built here a long time ago, the kind of urban culture that we used to have, understanding what it means to have a successful urban community and really work well on many levels. I think people can get drunk with success too quickly and and not understand that this is a long road that we still have to travel. And we still have a great deal of our city that is struggling very, very deeply, despite the fact that a, a couple of small areas are successful.
0: Yeah. Echoing that, I think that our history of racial segregation and dismantlement of Black family and business wealth when the city was abandoned by a large segment of the population for several decades is something that we need to reckon with despite having reinvestment in parts of our cities the ripple effect of corrupt government intervention persists and reinvestment can be positive but it can also increase taxes it can increase rents and mortgages and it can create power struggles within our institutions like our schools so we really need to come together as a community to address these issues, and we need to build strategies to help people from being displaced and help people benefit from reinvestment in neighborhoods. I think something else that can be a bit of a challenge, it's, it's a bit of a cultural challenge, I think, and it's that Kansas City also maintains this infatuation with big moonshot projects and policies. And we have a really long history of giving out massive tax incentives to big projects, and we've only really just started to embrace the concept of building incrementally in a way that enables locals to share in community wealth building. We really need to start asking ourselves whether or not our tax incentive approach is actually benefiting the lives of local people and that's the reason why I, I started the local chapter of the Incremental Development Alliance to kind of bring this network to light. And I, I want to shine a light on our local ecosystem of entrepreneurs and builders that currently exist in the community and are improving their own communities with a purpose. So I, I really long for the days when our local leadership care as much about every small project as they do about the big, flashy, incentivized projects.
2: Abby, I have one last question for you. And it sort of ends up dovetailing really nicely off of what you just said. Because I do think, and something that readers will see in our ebook is that we're critical of the the obsession with moonshot projects. And we think that part part of solving that puzzle of how do we really lift up the communities that have been disinvested in over time or people who are really struggling in Kansas City is focus our reinvestment on neighborhoods. And one thing that I've been really struck by, you know, as I've learned more and more about Kansas City while writing a bunch of these pieces is the wonderful older neighborhoods that the city does have that some some of them need a little TLC, but there is incredible potential there if you're willing to humble yourself to look at the tiny opportunities and let's do a thousand little things instead of one big thing and let's empower entrepreneurs and let's empower people who are in these communities to, to bring the communities up themselves. And so I'm maybe on a little bit of a soapbox with that, but Abby, you've sort of echoed that back to me when I've said, you know, you know, I was on Google street view today and here's a Kansas city neighborhood. I didn't know anything about, and it was really cool. And you started talking about your own and you so you live in a part of the city that long predates the suburban experiment, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. The neighborhood that I live in is probably one of the most non-conforming neighborhoods in the city. <laughs> you know, it, it actually reminds me quite a bit of St. Louis neighborhoods. Maybe that's why I was attracted to living here. It was originally built by Italian and Irish settlers back in the late 1800s and has a pretty interesting mafia history. Many families that have been living here for generations are still here and are really wonderful and welcoming people. As someone who is passionate about urban design and kind of messier urbanism, this neighborhood has become a really great home to me. and It has a really robust stock of missing metal housing and, and incremental development projects and several local businesses and community institutions. The architectural styles really span just about every era between the late 1800s and even the 2000s. So I actually really like the messiness of it. We bought our first house here from friends of ours who were able to achieve their first infill development project just next door. So they they actually moved next door to us and we took over <laughs> their house. We didn't exactly know what to expect, but have just been so grateful for the community here during this really difficult and challenging year. What I love most about about this neighborhood beyond the fact that I just think it's it's a beautifully urban neighborhood. It's really the neighbors. They they are wonderful people and they're incredibly passionate about the neighborhood. So I've been humbled to be welcome here as a new resident.
2: I, I love the, the idea of messiness. Um, and Kevin, that's certainly a phrase I've heard from you too. Your blog, The Messy City, sort of encapsulates that, that I think you know, when I, when I travel somewhere, that's what I'm drawn to. And I think it's because that's where so much of the underappreciated potential is in all of our cities, and Kansas City is no exception. It's the places that sort of have that eclectic, historic DNA that's never been lost. And there's just a wealth of ideas and sort of raw material, both, you know, physical old buildings, but raw kind of intellectual material that people can draw on to really make the place into what it could be based on what it has
1: been. Yeah, I think there's this this natural tension within all of us as human beings to have things really orderly uh, and make sense, but we also all want to have the ability to go do things on our own and make an impact and, and embrace a little chaos from time to time. You know, Abby is totally right. Our neighborhood uh, completely epitomizes that. You know, unfortunately, I think what what we've just done over so many years is we've leaned very, very heavily on the uh, orderly side. You know, as you all talk about with orderly but dumb, we have forgotten the joys and the virtues, the many, many virtues of uh, embracing a more chaotic and messy attitude towards life uh, and towards our cities. And uh, hoping we can start to recover some of that.
0: Yeah, I like the idea of embracing the chaos. So, which is what drew me to this neighborhood. If that's all you have, Daniel, I think that we could probably move into the down zone. What do you think? Let's do it. All right. Well, we are going to do the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that has been captivating our attention this week. Daniel, since you are our host today, I will start with you.
2: Um. All right. Well, you know, often I talk about something I've been reading or listening to here, but lately uh, it's finally cooled off in Florida where I live. Um, cooled off means it's in the low 80s now instead of um, 90 and muggy. But I've been, um, my wife and I have been converting our attached carport into a front porch for the winter and spring. We figured that's um A, maybe our only chance of having a social life as long as the pandemic continues, but right. <laughs> uh, B, just something we should have done years ago. Like, I don't need to park my car under a roof. It'll be fine on the street. And here's all this extra space I can do something with. So we bought a great little used patio set and um, some lights to string along the ceiling. And I'm really excited to just like live out there all winter. I, I realize that probably comes across as, as gloating to those of our listeners who are in places where it snows. I'm from Minnesota. I love the snow, but things are a little flipped in Florida and I'm going to be taking full advantage of it.
0: Yeah. I'm pretty jealous of you. We actually had our first snow just two weeks ago, one week ago. I, I can't really tell anymore. My sense of time has, has been altered these past nine months. (laughs) Um, Kevin, what do you have for us today?
1: Well, I've been uh, inspired by, uh, the recent Strong Towns podcast where Chuck had uh, Denise Hearn on and she talked about her new book, uh, The Myth of Capitalism. And uh, I went right out and bought it and I'm about halfway through reading it now. It's really an excellent book. And and I feel like it's just piecing so many things together for me that had been on my mind for a lot of years. Uh, So I'm someone who generally, you know, leans on loving the, you know, markets and The appeal for people to make choices as they see fit, but uh, have also had a hard time reconciling, you know, what we often see in the real world uh, in our country uh, with a lot of duopolies and and oligopolies. And I think uh, that book has been just fantastic and an eye opener in so many ways. So I, I highly recommend it.
0: I'm continuing to read that book right now, and I feel like we've plugged that book so many times because it's just <laughs> that good. It's like Chuck, you know, used it in his down zone, and then I did it, and now you're doing it. Now <laughs> it, I need to read it amazing. so you can
2: ask me what I've been reading lately, and um, I like, can <laughs> the Myth of Capitalism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah. That book has put so much into perspective for me. So it's – uh I recommend anybody who's listening to this show, if you have not gotten that book, you should go get that book because it is, it is kind of like mind-altering. You're like, oh, yeah, duh, that's what's happening. <laughs> I actually was going to plug an article written by my friend here, Kevin Klinkenberg, today – Uh, It was released by the American conservative today called After COVID, A Bright Future for American Cities. Uh, Big fan of this article. I I feel like um, I I could hear Kevin's voice when I was reading it because (laughs) it's like the voice of reason in this very chaotic time in our country. And so I really appreciated it and thought that I'd share it today because it's just a it, it kind of puts things into perspective of, no, it's not the end of cities. No, it's not the end of the world. Things will pursue into the future. It, everything's going to be okay. So thanks for that, Kevin.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it.
0: That's all we have for today. Thank you, Kevin. And thank you, Daniel, for hosting today. And thanks, everybody, for listening to today's episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, guys. Let me show you what.